just incredible wafting notes of sassafras. I'm like, I, <laughs> I don't know what, I don't know what sassafras <laughs> looks like or smells like. Late night bites, late, late night, night bites, bites, late night bites, late night bites, late night bites, late night bites. Hello and welcome to Late Night Bites. Thanks for joining us. We're so excited to have this next guest on the show. She is a sommelier based in New York City. Please welcome Emma Cad. Hey, Emma. Hi, guys. How's it going? Great. I'm so excited for this episode. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm super excited to be doing this. It's nice to, um, you know, have something to do outside of um, eating and playing Animal Crossing. So, so this is great. <laughs> I'm glad we make it on that list. That's a pretty, that's a pretty big list being like in the top three of eating Animal Crossing late night, recording late night bites. Yeah, guys, it's, it's a big deal. Um, this is really taking me out of my routine. So it's, uh, it's exciting stuff. Emma is gonna start us out with a really fun game that we put together called, um, is it a wine tasting note or is it not a wine tasting note? Inspired a little bit by the documentary Psalm, which is on Hulu, where there's quite the laundry list of flavors and items that are described in the blind wine tasting process. Um, and as two noobs to wine, both Ross and I have little experience in that. So I thought it might be fun for Emma to kind of um, see if we can guess some of wine tasting notes that are real or not. Yeah, love it. This this was actually a lot of fun for me to put together because there were already so many uh, ludicrous things that people taste in wine. So uh, some of these, as I was coming up with them, I was like, this is already insane. Um, <laughs> but you guys may have kind of a leg up having watched that documentary, but um, we will just dive into it. So the first one, um, is it real or is it not? Petroleum. I'm going to say that that is not a, 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 a flavor. Dan? It's definitely not a flavor. <laughs> a wine note, I guess I say. Why note? That's poor terminology, Ross. Already losing points. Oh, it my is, gosh. I'm going to say it is a wine note. Yeah, well done. It is a wine note. Um, just uh, particularly in, in aged Riesling, um, petrol wow. or petroleum, is it's a real thing. Wow. Um, the second one is chamomile. Chamomile is a wine note, totally. For sure. Hell I yeah. also agree. Um, it's, a, it's a note. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's a real one. Okay. The next one is wet leaves. No, it's not a wine note. I don't believe wet leaves. <laughs> Maybe if you said wet rainforest floor, but no, wet leaves is not. <laughs> you know what? Both wet leaves and wet rainforest floor are, um, are real oh things in, um, yeah, kind of that, you know, mushroomy farm floor or uh, musty leaves. That is a real thing, particularly in um, really high quality Pinot Noir. Huh. Wow. Uh, yeah, fun fact. Okay, the next one is plastic. Oh my goodness. Plastic. Yeah, you know, I've gnawed on some plastic before, so I think it's a why note. I think that's something you can relate to. Um, it could be a wine note, but why, why would you want it to be a wine note? I'm going to say just terrible wine note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, the plastic is not something I've encountered before. Um, I'm going to say it's not a wine note, but that doesn't mean people haven't tasted it. Um, so the next one is tulips. Tulips. I'm going to say 
I'm going to say it's not. I know violet is a lot, but I, I'm going to say that tulips is not. Tulips sounds like spring. It makes me happy. I think there's got to be some white wine where you can taste a, a fragrance of a tulip. I kind of made this one a little tricky because floral notes, like you said, violet, roses, totally in wine. Um, tulips is one of those ones that comes up in wine tastings ever so often. Um, if you smell a tulip, it doesn't really smell like anything. So tulip is not not a wine note, but floral notes are um, totally big in wine. Okay, guys, the next one is suntan lotion. Yeah. You know what? We've all, we've all eaten suntan lotion. We all can relate to that flavor note. So yeah. I say it is strong scent, so I can see why it might be, but no way. I don't think you can you can smell that in wine. <laughs> it is uh one hundred percent a wine wow. note, and it's um it's a process of oak aging, not something you want to eat in real life, but um it is uh it is a real wine taste. okay, so the next one is brioche brioche bread that sounds pretty good. I want it to be a note, so I'm gonna say yes. I, I, uh, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no, because I never want to agree with Dan. So I'm going to say no. <laughs> I mean, it's a safe practice, but it is 100% a wine note, particularly in, <laughs> <laughs> particularly in, in vintage champagne, um, having to do with the, the decomposed yeast um, that is a result of fermentation. The next one is bird feathers. That's hysterical. <laughs> Um, I kind of want the question to be like bird poop, but I'm going <laughs> to, because I know there has been some other animal excrements that you are allegedly able to like smell in wine. So I'm going to yep, say bird yep. feathers. No, I'm going to say it is. And the reason I say that is because I could see the Psalm culture also being totally for like quill pens mm. and understanding the taste <laughs> of a quill. So I'm going to say yes. Oh, man. This one, I couldn't even decide to put on. I was like, this is really ridiculous. It is not a real wine <laughs> note, but definitely, um, yeah, animal excrement or, or dirty diapers is <laughs> totally something um, people detect in wine, which is, you know, really disgusting. That is. Um, the next one is jalapeno. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to say it is because I feel like that can go in one of those, uh, sp in like a spicier wine, a nice wine with a little spice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love disagreeing with Ross. I find it hard to make a good counter argument here. <laughs> yeah, no, jalapeno absolutely is a wine note. Um, and I'm sure you guys have um, had the pleasure of drinking both Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet Sauvignon, mm -hmm. but uh, they share a compound that is in uh, green peppers, green bell peppers and jalapeno. So um, totally something you can detect in those wines, which is really fun. Cool. Um, all right, guys, the last one is Christmas spices. Wow. Well, you're asking two Jews here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'll say baking say... spices. Put me under the mistletoe yeah. and I'll Hell have a bottle. Yeah. It better. Absolutely. Um, yep. It's, it's another one of those results of beautiful, expensive oak aging. Um, well done, guys. Thank I'm you. impressed. Thank you. Are we ready to be masters? Is this the, do we pass? <laughs> I think that counts as 10,000 hours. <laughs> 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 we'll call it good. Sounds good. I, yeah. I, um, I wanted to, before, before we go on and before I forget, I do want to mention that I don't think we mentioned to this, uh, you, Emma, that uh, Dan is actually 
a champion in spiked seltzer tasting. Oh my god! <laughs> yes, I'm a master seltzer. I don't even know what the term is, but um, we it's in a bonus episode. But uh, we had a spiked seltzer tasting with a, a bunch of friends, and I, I basically ended up in a head-to-head. Uh, blind taste off with another contestant um, as a final tiebreaker and I, I did successfully win and was crowned the king of seltzer tasting <laughs> that is incredible yeah let's just say I'm, did it come down to did it come down to brands or just it flavors? was um so everything was blind so you had to guess there was a list of 30 both brand yeah. and flavor there were multiple brands who had multiple flavors and the trickiest part where there were multiple, like for example, cherry flavors from multiple brands and you had to distinguish. Um, and that was the real challenge was distinguishing black cherry white claw from, from, um, I can't even think of another one, but you know, you don't understand what I'm saying. <laughs> That's so impressive. That is really, really yeah, impressive. Crowning achievement over the last 12 months for sure. It's on his resume. Think- <laughs> we're, um, were limeritas incorporated into this tasting or is that a separate <laughs> That category? would have been a nice like <laughs> extension. The most disgusting thing on there was Ford Locos new Spike Seltzer. And let me just tell you, God. it was still as boozy as the normal Four Loco. It was terrible. I actually saw the Four Loco um, seltzer in a wholesale store the other day. And I was like, this is m- maybe the worst thing to come out of the pandemic. Yeah, it should, <laughs> it's for local it should stay there. Wow, that is, that is really yeah. cool. Now I'm gonna now I'm gonna experiment with my seltzer tasting. So, uh, so I would love to um, get into kind of the background of you becoming a sommelier. Um, so you are a five year New York restaurant veteran. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this career and uh, your path to becoming a uh, New York Psalm? Yeah, I mean, when I got to New York, um, I didn't have any intent of really diving deep into, you know, food and beverage service. It just happened to be the first job that I got when I moved to the city. Um, I, you know, I walked like 10 blocks south of my house and just started passing out my resume, which had no food or wine experience on it. But I was like, you know, I'm a hard worker, blah, blah, blah. Um, and got hired at a restaurant. Um, and, you know, had absolutely no experience. I dropped a beer on someone at oh my, like my first night. Um, and, um, but there is something, you know, really electric and um, fun working in restaurants. And I got addicted pretty quickly to it. Um that being said, I worked in a huge range of restaurants before I actually found myself um, in wine um, and, you know, did things like bottle service for a while. Um, I did some fine dining. I did upscale casual. I did. I worked, you know, tons of bottomless brunches. Um, and I think it was, you know, maybe like the fourth time I got asked to sit on somebody's lap doing bottle service that I was like, I can't mm. do this anymore. This is not sustainable. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. I don't like my life. Um, and there was also something I was just kind of missing, um, not being in school anymore, you know, not really having an academic or, um, you know, it, it was frustrating me that my day job was not really challenging me. Um, in any right. way beyond emotionally. 
So, um, so that was when I sought out my first job um, working in fine dining. And um, again, was, you know, totally inexperienced in that sector. But I remember going to my first wine tasting, like my first educational wine tasting and, and being asked, uh, what are you tasting? What fruits are you getting? What is the tannin? What is the acidity? And having absolutely no idea and thinking <laughs> all I taste is grapes. Um, <laughs> I just, it, it wasn't clicking for me. I remember the first time it really clicked and I tasted something beyond wine. Um, it was so engaging for me and so exciting. I think a lot of songs talk about kind of like aha moments. Um, one of mine was uh, working with a psalm at a, at a restaurant I worked at a couple of years ago. He um, passed me a wine, which I now know was a Chilean Sauvignon Blanc and asked me, what do you smell? And right away when I smelled it, I smelled so strongly as if it were a fresh jalapeno, mm. freshly chopped jalapeno skin. And it popped into my head right away. And I was like, oh my God, this is so strong. Um, and maybe six months later, he had me blind taste the, what happened to be the same wine. I, I um, but it, right away when I smelled it, the same sensory memory came up of jalapeno skin. And I was like, oh my gosh, I think this is that Chilean Sauvignon oh, Blanc. Wow. And I could not believe I was right. Um, I think just, just having one of those aha moments where like you experience sensory memory in a really cool way, or just experience something on a sensory, in a sensory way that you hadn't before. Um, I got kind of hooked on that, um, and decided I wanted to pursue it more. Um, and I, you know, just did a lot of tasting and, um, ended up doing two certifications last year. Um, and, um, had some really great mentors and and got into the industry which has been That's really so cool. fun and, and rewarding um what so now that you've you've kind of you've been immersed into it um what is the psalm culture like uh does does everyone know each other are there cliques uh i know you mentioned that you have a mentor so like how does that work you know yeah i mean it's funny to me to you know, to kind of see what people's impression of the Psalm culture is. I mean, I think a lot of people, their only impression of it is having watched documentaries like, like Psalm on Hulu or, you know, some of these various things. Um, I will say the Psalm culture is, is super competitive, at least in my experience. And it's, um, it's pretty demanding. I'd say most people who are working on as Psalms are working on average, um, 10 to 15 hour days. Um, for people who are working in restaurants, you're not only service, you know, during dinner probably itself, but you're doing inventory, you're doing tastings with reps, you're maybe doing education for your staff, um, you're doing inventory. So it's it's a pretty demanding job. Um, that being said, I think it is a it's pretty competitive not only with yourself but with your colleagues. I think there is um, definitely a culture of everybody coming together at the end of the night or at the end of the shift and seeing who sold the most expensive bottle, who opened the coolest shit, like, you know, <laughs> who tasted what, who sold what to whom. Um, so there definitely is a competitive nature to it. It is a small world, I will say. I've um, 
uh, a lot of the people who I've met, I've seen again and again at tastings or, you know, just hanging out with friends. I noticed with the uh, with the Psalm documentaries and just uh, my own experience that it seems to be a um, a male heavy industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was wondering if um, you'd be able to speak on on that and, um, you know, if more women are joining the industry and uh, how it might be shifting at all. Yeah, I mean, I remember watching the Psalm documentary for the first time, maybe, I don't know, three or four years ago, and like being pretty annoyed, um, because it is like a lot of men, and for the majority of the women that actually appear in the documentary, they're mostly like their wives, um, mm. being like, he works so hard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, you don't really see a lot of female professionals in that documentary. Yeah. Um, there definitely is a lot of uh, sexism, sexism in the industry. Like I had plenty of experiences where I've walked up to a table, you know, in my suit um, and uh, have been asked, mm. you know, can you send the psalm over? Um, Yikes. You know, and have been like, I am the psalm. So um, and I think people are definitely like embarrassed if that happens to them. There's there's not been anyone who's um, like such a jerk. But I've definitely been called like a lady psalm a lot of the times or, oh, you're a lady sommelier, um, by guess, which uh-huh. feels a little antiquated. But I think it definitely is changing and has been changing for the last five or 10 years, which is really exciting. Um, the Within the Court of Master Sommeliers, which is one of the, you know, certification bodies, um, the title of Master Sommelier, which is a, an exam with a, I think, somewhere from three to eight percent pass rate um there are 172 wine professionals who have earned that title as of right now um and only 28 of them are women wow yeah so there definitely is a huge gender gap still um although people are working to change that um i will say there are a lot of um you know beyond people who are working in restaurants or who hold the title of sommelier there are a lot of um, women entering the industry in other areas, particularly in vineyards or um, women who are winemakers. Um, and, and two regions that are really exciting right now to look at um, are actually Oregon, um, right here in the U.S., have really spearheaded that movement. There are a ton of women mm. working in wine, making wine. Um, Chile is one of my favorite regions. Um partially due to the fact that 40% of winemakers in Chile uh, are women, um, oh, which wow. I think is, a, is amazing and is totally not the case in, in most of the rest of the world. So definitely things are changing. And, um, you know, some of that, some of those stereotypes have, have certainly relaxed um, in the last five or 10 years. And it's, it's weird to me that like, you know, kitchens and cooking are such traditionally like the domestic space is so feminine but there are so few uh, female chefs and female executive chefs so there's a lot of there's a lot of irony there um but it is changing so um i uh in terms of like recommending things or just kind of like your mindset with it my understanding and you've kind of talked a bit about it too my understanding is that um europe uh some of those um vineyards and winemakers uh, might take a more uh, traditional approach or old school approach. Whereas in, uh, in the Americas, maybe there's a little bit, is a little bit more experimental, maybe even in Australia too. Mm -hmm, Um, Totally. And then I also heard to the arguments between 
uh and you can correct me here if it's new oak and old oak maybe maybe that's the the two brands but i guess my point my question is do you yourself subscribe to one of those cultures or do you do you take all of the cultures um kind of like what's what's your approach as a sommelier that's a that's a really good question your palate and what you enjoy is definitely not necessarily going to be what all of your clients, uh, what all of your clientele enjoys. So um, in terms of, you know, having really pronounced oak or more neutral oak within a wine or having wines that have more sort of earthy and minerally characters versus, you know, kind of fruit bomb wines. Um, personally, my palate goes more towards the um, old world uh, wines that use, you know, better integrated oak, um, and are maybe a little less fruity, but, um, that's not what's, what's big in America or in Australia, um, uh, or in some of these more new world areas where people are not drinking wine to pair it with food as they do largely in Europe. They're drinking wine to get drunk. Um, (laughs) (laughs) which was, which totally changed the wine industry. And, you know, in California, um, you know, when wines got big there and um, these massive brands like um, Gallo Wines or Yellowtail um, in Australia became popular, they were big, bold wines that were super ripe and super high in alcohol. And the American palate totally began to dictate even the way people were making wines um, in Europe, and they've had to adjust to making wines differently than they've made it for thousands of years. So, so yeah, I mean, even though my palate, I think, is maybe a little bit more old school or more accustomed to old world styles of making wine, um, it's totally not really a question of what you like when you're selling wine. The phrase fake until you make it. Have you, have you ever... Has there been somebody who's trying to show off their wine <laughs> yeah. knowledge to you, maybe in the restaurant or otherwise, and you just can call bluff on them? Like, has that happened to you? And if so, like, what did they tell us? Many, many, many times. I try not to judge people for, you know, for trying to talk about wine or, um, you know, for faking knowledge because it is like a totally esoteric um kind of dumb field that has you know (laughs) there's just like so many things that um are encyclopedic that you know don't have to be that way or but um but generally it's like in questions that people ask where you know they will ask uh you know has how has this wine been aged in oak and for how long and um sometimes it's just a wine that would probably never see oak exposure you know like little things they're very like industry niche things actually it happens the most on um dates um and it's <laughs> it's something that i look for a lot um trying to pick out people that are on first dates um partly because you can usually <laughs> pressure them into spending more money. <laughs> sounds terrible. No, but if somebody's game. trying to impress another person, generally they're going to splurge a little bit. So it is, it is a bit of a tell. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I try, not to, I try not to be too judgmental of anyone based on the questions they're asking or if they don't know what they're talking about because um, half the time um, I still don't know 100% of what I'm talking about, um, and um, and I didn't used to know literally anything about wine. So yeah. if you're learning and you're asking questions, I think that's great. 
What are uh, some of the craziest descriptors you've heard and perhaps said, like a wine note or descriptions of the wine? Yeah, I mean, I feel like generally I try to make my descriptions fairly approachable. But then again, you know, I'm, I'll am i be reading a wine textbook and they'll be like, <laughs> just incredible wafting notes of sassafras. I'm like, I, <laughs> I don't know what. I don't know what sassafras <laughs> looks like or smells like or anything, but, um, but I did work with some Psalms that, um, describe wines in, um, in terms of like cultural references, which I thought was really cool and, and sometimes really ridiculous. But, um, sometimes I, I worked with Psalms who describe wines in terms of like famous actors, like being like, oh, this wine is, this wine is like George Clooney, but, but this yeah. one is, you know, like, Marlon Brando or, you know, giving a sense of (laughs) giving people a sense of, you know, if the wine had a personality, what would it be? I worked with a psalm that described wines um, in terms of cars a lot of the time, you know, being like this. This is like the Ferrari of roses, which worked really well with um, men over 50. But I think (laughs) with everyone else, it was perhaps a little um, off putting. Um, But I think every so often, like you'll taste a wine and just something really weird occurs to you. But when you say it out loud, you, I mean, when you say it out loud, you feel ridiculous, but every so often you'll say it out loud and people are like, yeah, weird, but, but yeah, like, um, I remember tasting wine or I don't remember if it was tasting or smelling, but Hmm. just being like, oh my God, this is like Fruit Loops. Um, and uh, somebody was like, yeah, it is like Fruit Loops or, or Go-Gurt <laughs> or um, these spectacular culinary scents and sounds like w- whatever occurs to you is being right. Why not? You know, it's a shame to me that uh, that you don't get some of these wines where it's like, oh, like, uh, you know, it's a Burgundy or from the hills of Napa Valley. Uh, the family has spent generations developing this wine, <laughs> and you might sense Fruit Loops and uh, Gogurt, particularly the Blueberry Gogurt of uh, 1996. Uh, yeah. You know, it's a shame yeah. that, that that those descriptors aren't used more widely on the bottles, perhaps. Totally. Well, that actually became a really big thing in wine label- labeling, like, um, you know, family history or, you know, famed history of the wines is kind of a big thing. But um but yeah, I mean, marketing for wines has totally changed. I think um, a lot of people are aiming for marketing that's a lot more fun or hip or more approachable, um, you know, cute labels, animals on the labels, whatever. I mean, it's it's totally becoming a different conversation. I mean, often you're you're getting different glasses for the different wines you order, probably segmented by color. Is there a science behind that? I mean, sometimes it's personal preference, but generally um, there is a reason for um, what you're serving in what glassware, sparkling wine, for example, um, generally you would want it to be a more narrow glass or a tulip shaped glass, or, um, some people are critical of flutes because you're not able to draw, draw as much aromatic character out of the wine. But the reason for the flute or a more narrow gas is so that, um, Mm. the carbonated character of the wine is contained. Um, in general with white wines you're looking for a medium-sized glass so that the fruit character of the wine is contained within the glass but with a large enough opening that you're able to get some aromatic character out and then generally with red wines um, you're looking for a bigger glass just because they're more structured Um, you have tannins that you're dealing with um, and you just have 
perhaps more intense flavors uh, that you're looking to come out of the glass. Um, you know, you have glassware in restaurants. You may have heard people use Bordeaux versus Burgundy glasses. Um, Burgundy being the big kind of bowl-shaped glasses that are really beautiful. And in general, what you're serving in those glasses are the more aromatic varieties where they have very intense noses and you're looking to draw more out of them. Ultimately, you just want something that you can really smell out of and taste and, and get a full experience. Sometimes you're looking at wines that need to develop more and need more space. If you're dealing with something like a fortified wine, like say you're having a port or a sherry or something after dinner, you're looking at a smaller glass um, simply because they're more alcoholic. You don't, you don't drink as much of it. But yeah, there is a science behind it. Um, it can get a little ridiculous in terms of <laughs> all the glassware that ends up on your table. Um, but it's a lot of fun and it's cool to know what you're drinking and why. I also like the ritual of it too, even beyond the science. I think it's also fun just like, you know, separating certain things and having a different experience with uh, different uh, uh, types of wine or totally. flavors or. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there is like kind of a grandeur to it all that I think it, that that's really exciting. There is like an elegance to it. Um you know, I, I think it's funny, actually, because so many Psalms is kind of a departure, but um, I think a lot of Psalms don't often drink wine outside of work, either just because they get so burnt out at tastings or burnt out talking about it that they crave other things. But um, but there is like just a really exciting feeling to dining out and, um, you know, seeing all the glasses stack up and having this little you know, mausoleum in front of you is, is really fun. What, uh, so I think this is a two part question. What's your favorite part about being a Psalm? And also, do you have a favorite wine? I think my favorite part about being a Psalm and why I really enjoy the job so much is, um, it combines a lot of things that I just really enjoy. Like it's super academic, uh, there's aspects of it from, you know, geography, history, um, topography. Uh, there's a big culinary element um, in terms of thinking about wine pairings and all these different things. It just combines many different fields of study with you get to drink. I mean, hello, that's freaking awesome. Like you <laughs> get to, you know, drink <laughs> right. alcohol. So there's this great sensory aspect, too. And what I what I do like about it is, at least if you're working in a restaurant and you're selling wine to people, um, it involves a lot of problem solving, a lot of um, in the moment thinking, dealing with a lot of different personalities, trying to understand what people want. You are going to have people who don't like what you serve them and um, dealing with you, you know, kind of the recovery aspects of that. It's just a really exciting job. It's constantly changing. It's constantly challenging me. And I'm constantly learning. And um, that's totally when I went out of a job. In terms of a favorite wine, yes. champagne, all day, every day. <laughs> I, wish I, had, <laughs> I wish I had the budget for that. Yeah. But I love bubbles. I love that just anytime it feels like a celebration. Why not just, you know, feel like you're celebrating every day for no reason. There's always something to celebrate. Um, Would you ever move to, do you... If you can't get champagne, will you just, uh, would you buy Prosecco if that's available? Or are you like straight up champagne, like all the way? I mean, I wish I could always drink champagne, but there are, um, there are like pretty big characteristic differences between Prosecco and champagne, just in terms of the methods in which they're made. But there are cheaper examples 
of champagne that are yeah. made in the same method, like cava in Spain, uh-huh. like Franciacorta in Italy, like many um, cremants in France. Like there are so many things out there that I just encourage people to try new things and ask questions and go to your local wine store and ask, what should I try? Do you have any suggestions for food pairings with quarantine staples? Like for example, mm-hmm. sardines, spaghetti, canned tomatoes, sourdough bread. Uh, perhaps if you want wine with your just your sourdough starter, I don't know. Hell yeah. So, so sardines, or I think a lot of people are like digging out like canned olives that they've, I just brought out a oh. can of olives that I'd had for like two years, probably. Um, so uh, something that you can often think about is like, some people say what grows together goes together. So thinking about the region that the food might originally be from and what do they drink there. Interesting. Um, with sardines and with olives, like these kind of brinier foods that um, or, or pickled things that people are keeping in their pantry, um, I would absolutely say rosé, in particular rosé from Provence, just that beautiful fruity character and um, total freshness that comes from, I would say probably a more pale rosé is a really nice balance to that salty, briny character you get with a sardine. I think a lot of people are working with tomatoes right now, canned tomatoes, spaghetti, kind of basic pantry staples. That's a great example of, you know, what grows together goes together. Um, We're in Tuscany. Uh, We're thinking marinara there. uh, I I would recommend like a really beautiful Sangiovese or uh, from Chianti or a Chianti Classico. Um, which is wine where a lot of people say they detect, you know, kind of tomato leaf or these more red fruit notes that pair really well with tomato. With your sourdough starter, unsurprisingly, I am saying champagne (laughs) or cava (laughs) with sourdough, particularly if you have some brie, um, you know, and some fruity jam. Um, Those sourdough notes are totally going to be mirrored in some way, probably in your champagne or your cava. So I think that's a really beautiful pairing. And who isn't baking banana bread right now, right? Um, Are you even quarantining if you're not baking banana bread? Like, you're not. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I, uh, I would say probably like a nice oak Chardonnay, maybe from, um, from Australia or from the Napa or Sonoma range, something with well-integrated oak that's got that nice buttery um, vanilla character to it that's really nice with a, with a sweeter you know, that banana buttery quality, or I really want to encourage people to try, um, to try some dessert wines or try something off dry or slightly sweet. Um, they can be amazing food pairings, particularly with, um, Indian food or Asian food. If you're ordering in takeout, try an off dry Riesling from Germany or from any other region that does really beautiful off dry Riesling. If you're drinking, if you're eating something spicy, Alcohol is actually not your friend. Um, it will increase the heat and the burning in your mouth in a really unpleasant way. So um, if you're eating something spicy, like Asian food, like Indian food, or any kind of takeout, looking for a wine that's low alcohol with a little bit of sweetness, a white wine can be really pleasing. And in general, just low-risk wines, light, unoaked white wines like a Pinot Grigio or a Riesling or a Sauvignon Blanc, those are totally low risk or a low tan in red, like a Beaujolais, a Gamay, um, a Valpolicella, um, a Pinot Noir. Those are your food friendly, pretty foolproof wines. You can eat them with it or drink them with anything. That's so cool. Something I was realizing too, that I really like about 
the uh, sommelier as part of the experience of uh, eating somewhere is that I feel like you guys are also the storytellers. I like that. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, not that, not that I don't want to take anything away from the chef or the or the server or anything of the sort, but I feel like uh, you come in, they, you know, the the table wants a bottle of wine and uh, or a glass of wine, and you're there to you're there to take all these pieces together and kind of bring them on this little vacation somewhere uh, totally. in order to choose something. And I feel like, you know, something I love is even with these quarantine staples, like even, you know, I'm looking at some cans of sardines right now and uh, I love sardines, but the cans just look okay. They just look like canned sardines, but you, you just brought, you know, you just brought us to like on a vacation essentially when right. you were describing it. I love that. I mean, that's one of my favorite things about the field is, you know, I can't afford to travel and, and who, no one's traveling right now, but um, I'm constantly reading and, and, you know, thinking about other countries and places I want a vacation and thinking about the way other cultures live their life. And it is like you get a mini vacation. We are going to ask you for your unpopular opinion of the day. Doesn't, doesn't have to be wine related, but it might be. Um, <laughs> but I uh, would love to hear what you're thinking. It is actually wine related. And it's something that I see all the time in restaurants and, you know, I'm kind of contradicting myself saying like, what you like is what you like, but I just, I really don't like this. And um, it's, a lot of people say it's a great pairing. I don't think huh. it is. Red wine with chocolate. Whoa. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. I mean. You're going there. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people really love it and that's fine. For me, it doesn't work um, because there is, you know, some bitterness in chocolate, but more importantly, there's probably sweetness um, and red wine has a lot of bitterness. Anytime there's sugar in your food, it's going to exacerbate any bitterness that's in the wine. So for me, if I taste red wine alongside chocolate, all I get is like chalky, nasty, astringent bitterness. It just does not work for me. Um, but I have people order it all the time. I'm not going to tell them no. Um, in my opinion, <laughs> it sucks. But if, if people want it, that's fine. I just think it's disgusting. <laughs> Emma, we asked for an unpopular opinion, not something that's yeah. going to start a riot on the street. <laughs> I, I do admire I do admire you sharing that unpopular opinion with us. Thank um, you. I'm a hero. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but seriously, thank you so much uh, for sharing that and uh, for being on the show. It was an absolute pleasure. Uh, anything else you want to share with us? Is there... Uh, is there somewhere where people can follow you? Is there an organization you want people to follow? I don't know, anything of the sort? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I am on Instagram. I do post about wine and food every so often. Um, it's Emma underscore CAD. Um, but generally, I think, you know, right now, just go out to your local wine store if you can. Um, support all the amazing merchants that are still working through the pandemic and doing really great stuff. And, um, you know, throw people a tip here and there when you can. Um, and when this is all said and done, go to restaurants, tip well, um, hmm. ask questions, have fun, get drunk. Um, and, um, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's all get back to it soon, hopefully. And maybe, maybe after this, maybe uh, you will start the revolution and maybe that glass of red wine and chocolate, maybe after this, people are going to go for something else and we're, <laughs> we're going to, maybe we're going to see a, a, a more beautiful world after this with that. Maybe so. Hopefully I've just ended an era. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Emma. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Looking for some more podcast content? We recommend listening to I Have a Question with Rachel and Walls. They're on Apple, Spotify, Anchor, and more. 
You can also find them on Instagram, at withrachelandwalls. That's at W-I-T-H-R-A-C-H-E-L-A-N-D-W-A-L-L-S. I just finished listening to their episode, Hot Pocket, where they talk about how hot pockets can affect your life, the quest for bathroom cleaning, mental health, where they hope to break the quarantine fast, and more. In their episodes, Rachel and Walls do a weekly check-in, ask each other questions about anything, and leave listeners with recommendations for things to read, watch, eat, and more. It's awesome. So subscribe and listen. Go do it now. And join us for next week's bonus episode where Emma leads us through a wine tasting. Follow Late Night Bites on social media at The LNB Show, online, thelnbshow.com, and please be sure to subscribe and review. Thank you.